evidence and answers. Hope is a powerful and inspirational force. While false hope can be devastating, true and everlasting hope is priceless. That is one reason the study of prophecy is so valuable in the life of every believer. In Christ, for prophecy reveals to us the great, wonderful, and unshakable hope and future we have in Christ. Join Pat today on Evidence and Answers as he reveals to us the events that will take place at the end of the age. Pat Zucrin is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics. The Defense of the Christian Faith. Today we're going to listen to a recent sermon by Pat entitled, Living in Light of His Return. Join Pat now for this inspiring message taken from 2 Peter chapter 3. Okay, so 2 Peter chapter 3 is talking about this event here. At the end of the millennium, the heavens and the earth are completely destroyed by fire. It says here that at, at the end of the millennium here, it says here in verse 10, But day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now here, the heavens refer to the earth's atmosphere and the starry skies. Okay? Not heaven, God's abode and our eternal abode. The heavens here refer to the sky and the stars. It says that they will be completely destroyed. First Peter is quoting a passage from Isaiah here, chapter 34, verse 4, where Isaiah talks about the end of the age. He says, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall as leaves falling from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Right? So, Peter is quoting that kind of imagery found in the Old Testament. Now, it says here, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. This is a very colorful word. The word roar, it's... You're going to have to go way back in English grammar now. Way back. It's called a automatopia. You remember what that is? The car goes vroom, Right? When the wall falls, it goes, whatever, okay? It's an automatopoeia here. And it's a colorful word describing the swish of an arrow through the air. Or it's used of, to describe a, the rumbling of thunder or the rushing of mighty waters or even the crackle of flames as it consumes and burns up its object. And Peter here appears to be using a word that unites all the horrors into one word here. And it says, the elements shall be destroyed by fire. Now, the Greek word for element here, it's an interesting word, stoikia. Okay? It either refers to stars or the material elements, which is what the universe is made of. In other words, the destruction will be complete. Okay? The destruction will be by some intense fire that will melt away the very elements which make up our universe. And I believe from this passage, this event not only will bring complete change to the earth, but I think it's going to change the mechanics of the universe as well. We know according to the second law of thermodynamics that the universe is running down of usable energy and one day the universe will meet its death. Well, if we're to be here for all eternity, those mechanics have got to change. And I believe this is describing part of the change that will occur not only upon this earth, but throughout the universe as well. 
It says here, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Or some of your translations may read will be laid bare. Now, the Greek word there, it's another interesting word, urethsetai. And this word has several meanings. So it's up to you to do a word study and see which one you think best fits the context here. It could mean that everything will be exposed for what it really is. The secrets of men, the true nature of this sinful, fallen world will be revealed for what it really is. Or another interpretation is that it could suggest that it's actually a question. Peter is saying, will anything be found or remain after this? Or the third interpretation is that it could mean that everything will be burned up. Now, most commentators take the first view that that's why they translate it the way they do, that it will be exposed. The secrets of men and the true nature of this fallen, sinful world will finally be revealed for what it truly is. You know, this verse presents a tremendous problem for the Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah Witnesses believe that when Christ returns, he will defeat the armies and governments of this world and establish his kingdom here upon this earth. And the Jehovah Witnesses will rule and reign with Christ and teach everyone Jehovah Witness doctrine, and everyone else will be left to clean up the earth. And I remember when I was speaking to a Jehovah Witness elder, I said, you mean this present earth, as it is now, we're going to live on it, just Christ is going to rule and we'll be cleaning it up? And he said, that's right. The present earth we live on now is what we will live on, and you'll be cleaning it up and listening to us. And I said, well, how do you handle 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10? And he said, where? So I looked at it and I said, well, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done it will be exposed. And he looked at it for a long time. And he kind of looked at me and said, I'll have to get back to you on that. Never has. But that presents a tremendous problem for Jehovah Witnesses. But the earth and all the elements will be burned up by some kind of intense heat of judgment here. Whenever Christ comes and judges people or judges things. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's usually in the imagery of fire. You know, I got to visit Nagasaki and Hiroshima and go and visit the museums there. And I got to see the pictures of the devastation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and Read about the atomic blast that just in just a few seconds leveled these metropolises to just a barren, wasted desert. The explosion and the radiation was so intense. You see in this picture here, the shadows were burned right into the walls that remained standing. The shadows of people and objects were just, the heat was so intense, it just burned into any standing structure that was left there. And in fact, a Christian doctor who survived the atomic blast ministered to his people at that time. He eventually died as well. But he wrote of his experience there in a wonderful, wonderful book called The Bells of Nagasaki. It was never allowed to be translated into English, not till just a few years ago because of the things that he described. But it is this man, Takashi Nagai, great and wonderful biography. I wish more Americans would read it. He's one of the Christians in the darkest times of the Japanese people. It is his writings that gave tremendous hope to the people of Japan. Eventually, 
because of the radiation sickness, in just a few months, all he could do was lie on his back, and he had to have someone dictate the words he wanted written. He was a tremendous figure throughout the world, and his books were finally allowed to be translated to English. And I remember reading The Bells of Nagasaki, wonderful book, but he was describing the atomic blast, and in one chapter he describes the blast as described from several people who were there to witness it and survived. And one man, he describes the blast, he says that he saw the bomb falling from the sky, and suddenly there was a white, that famous white mushroom cloud explosion, and he said that there was just silence for just a few seconds, and then suddenly, he said there was the horrifying sound of a tremendously powerful rushing wind, more powerful than a tornado or any other tsunami or any other force he had ever heard. And he saw that wind coming towards him, and he said it was like a million bulldozers blowing everything over, blowing down, going at lightning fast speed as it raced across the city coming right at him. He said he felt completely helpless as he put his head down into the ground and prayed that he would survive. And then he said he heard the tremendous explosion and then that mighty rushing wind that came and just swept right over him and right through the city. He said the force of a million bulldozers flying through the air, leveling everything in that city. And he said after a few seconds in that ditch, he got up and began calling for his family and he said the only thing he could smell was the smell of burning resin. And he looked throughout the land and it looked like hell. Everything black and burned to the ground. That's the image I get when I read this passage. It says that the heavens will pass away with a great roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, knowing the future of this material world and what is to come to pass. God calls us then to live wisely. Invest your life and resources wisely in the things that really matter. You know, as Christians, we often forget there are things more important than money and the material things of this world. Three things are going to last forever. God, His Word, and the souls of men and women. And Peter is reminding us then, hey, invest your lives in the things that really matter. We often forget people are more important than things of this material world. And so we want to center and build our goals wherever God has placed you, in whatever job you may be in. This is not a call for everyone to quit and go into the ministry. But whatever your job or calling may be, you want to keep that in mind. You want to invest your life in the things that will last forever. God, His Word, and the souls of men and women. And keep that priority straight always. Knowing the things of this material world. Well, one day you're going to leave it behind. And one day, it'll all be gone. And what will remain with you for all eternity? Oh, God, His Word, your soul, and the lives of the people that you touched and impacted for the kingdom of God. That's what's going to be with you for all eternity. Because all this will be gone, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. 
Now, knowing this is the future, how then should we be living? How do we live in light of eternity, in light of knowing what is to come? Well, Peter says this. He says in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Since all these things are to be dissolved, Peter says, well, then how should you be living? The expectation of Christ's return should inspire us to live for Him. You see, there's a direct connection between our conduct and our convictions. Knowing that Christ will return and that history is moving towards this climactic end should stimulate us to holy living and righteousness and living for Him. Now, those without this kind of hope have very little to be optimistic about. The great philosopher and scholar William Barclay summarizes those who reject the idea that history has a purpose, that the universe has a purpose for why it exists. You see, if you don't believe in God, the universe is simply an accident, then what is the ultimate purpose of your life? Well, you come to the conclusion all the great atheist philosophers have come to, Hume, Sartre, Voltaire, Russell, Nietzsche, they all conclude life is ultimately meaningless. It's ultimately meaningless. And what great hope do you have? Well, your annihilation, the annihilation of mankind and the death of the universe. That's the only thing you have to look forward to. He says, those without God who reject the idea that history is actually his story, that it's moving towards some kind of purposeful, climactic, meaningful end, really have only three responses. First, he says, it's Hedonism, which means let's party. Eh? Hedonism says, I was nothing, I am nothing. So thou who art still alive, eat, drink, and be merry. Eh? Let's just party. Or apathy. Once I had no existence, and now with my great discovery, I realize I have none. And I'm aware of it. And it doesn't concern me. Just let it be. Or despair. What is below? Deep darkness. But what of the paths that promise upwardness? All but a lie. Thus, we are simply lost. Despair. Those are the three responses. If you come to believe the false idea that we're in a universe without a God or a creator. But Peter says, we know what the end will be. It's moving towards God's climactic end. So what kind of people ought you to be, he asked there in verse 11? Well, that's what we call a rhetorical question, okay, a question with an obvious answer. And in case you missed it, he says, well, you ought to be living lives of holiness and godliness. What does holiness mean? It means set apart. Okay? It means set apart from the world, set apart unto God. Okay? Vessels in the temple of God in the Old Testament they're set apart from regular use, okay? You don't take things from the temple dedicated to God okay, and use it to go cook dinner with, all right? That's just set apart strictly for the use of the Lord. That's what it means. And he says, we are to live lives of holiness. It means set apart from this sinful, fallen world and set apart completely unto God. Godliness, that word there means devotion unto God, characterized by a life of righteousness and moral goodness. And he says there, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people 
ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness. Now, the word lives there or live in several of your translations, it is in the present tense, indicating that these are the qualities that are the hallmark for the Christian all the days of his life. Knowing that Christ will return, knowing the future of the material world, knowing the judgment that is coming, believers are called to live lives set apart from the world, devoted completely unto Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying here is that remember what is important. Our character and the kind of lives that we live and the lives we touch for Christ, that is what has greater lasting value than the material things or the awards you win here upon the earth. We work hard to attain good education. We work really hard to develop a good income. We work hard for the home that we have. Uh, we work hard for that big screen TV. We work hard to be the master of whatever video game we might be playing here. Well, how hard do we work as Christians on our character? Right? Peter exhorts us, grow in godliness and holiness and develop your character to be more like Christ because that's what's really going to matter at the end of days. It's your character and the kind of life you live and the lives you touch for Jesus Christ that are going to matter for all eternity. You know, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51, Jesus gives us this exhortation. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. The truly faithful servant of the Lord is the one who lives a life in obedience to God's word and God's command. This past winter, well, actually in the fall, my sister asked me if I would go to Japan with her and her kids because her husband wasn't able to go. And so she said, well, would you, would you come with us? Would help me out? Because the girls all want to go shopping. And of course, Neil, you know, he's nine. He doesn't want to go shopping. He wants to go to Disneyland and go play games or whatever. And I thought about it for a while and thought, you know what? I'm going to be coming off a big trip in November. I'm going to be really tired. And Japan costs a whole heck of a lot, you know. And, man, I was really saving up for this a computer program, mega Bible study package that I wanted, and the tablet thing, so that I don't have to carry notes around with me. I just carry my tablet and just, and all that. And I, I was thinking, nah, maybe not, you know. But then it kind of bothered me, and I, I believe it was from the Holy Spirit kind of tapping on my shoulder, saying, you know what, your nieces are already in high school, your nephew is still in elementary school, but they are so busy. They are tied up in this and that, baseball, ballet, you know, whatever. And you here you get a chance one week to spend with them day and night for an entire week. Those chances may not come for you much longer okay? because the two nieces are going to graduate and they're going to go off to college your nephew will get into high school and he's already a star baseball player and he'll probably be tied up in sports and whatever his name. And you may not have this time again. 
to be a witness for Jesus Christ for them. They still don't know the Lord, and here's an opportunity where you get to spend one week with them there in Japan. And considering that, I thought, all right, all that I had saved for this mega Bible program and this whatever, iPod, iPad, whatever that thing is, and all that I had saved, I said, all right, gone. Got my ticket to Japan and plus the train, rail pass, and the hotels, and glass of orange juice there. It's like four bucks, you know, and we're not talking. You're talking like whiskey shot orange juice kind of thing. (laughs) So anyway, all that, blew it all that, moped around for about a couple weeks, Anyway, when I went on the trip, I realized, indeed, that was a worthwhile investment. And I may never have that chance again to be with them week in, week out, being able not only to share about the Lord, but just to live life. Hopefully, I had a character of holiness and godliness that really spoke more than words that I said. And we had a great time out there. And... You know, when I said goodbye to them in Japan because I was going to go down south to visit some historical sites and and see a missionary friend, I realized that I had done the right thing, that there was an investment in eternity. You know, that Bible program and all that. Yeah, that's all good. But, you know, one day that'll be gone. But it's the lives of my nephew and nieces and my sister that will last for eternity. I need to invest in that and make it a priority, no matter what the cost may be. You know, in a life application for each one of us is to continually develop our character, to grow in Christ. As Christians, many of you have been Christians for a while. We can often get complacent, right? We can get lazy. It's a struggle to study the Word. It's even a bigger struggle to change your character. Changing one's character is a really difficult thing. But Peter exhorts us to that. In chapter 1, verse 7, well, actually in verse 5 we begin. He says, for this very reason, he has gone through all that Christ has done for us on the cross. And he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter there in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort. It's hard work, not only to study God's word, but to develop your character and grow in your character, conquering sin and the bad habits of your life and becoming more and more like Christ. And it's hard work. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith. It is hard work. Uh, We work hard at a lot of things in life. How hard do we work at improving our character and becoming more like Christ? And one of the sad things to see is to see people who've walked with Christ for many years still, as Paul wrote, you know, acting like mere children. You know, one thing that helps me change my character and helps me to grow is this. When the Holy Spirit convicts me of some kind of sin in my life, maybe my temper is bad, maybe, you know, the way that I am communicating is not good, You know, I'm using words that 
perhaps come off in the wrong way or I'm being self, whatever it may be. You know, when the Holy Spirit convicts me, right then, you know, you just need to stop and acknowledge, well, that's sin. And the Holy Spirit's convicting me of that. And it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit working in cooperation with your will that really starts to change. Okay, the Holy Spirit won't force you to become someone if you really don't want to be. All right, if you don't want to give up certain sins and certain habits, God won't force you to change. You've got to want to change. And the Holy Spirit will work with your will and start beginning that process of changing your character. So when the Holy Spirit convicts you, you know, sit down and admit, all right, that's sin. I got to work on it. This concludes the second part of this message. I hope you've come to a greater understanding of the wonderful hope we have as believers in Christ. Join Pat for part three of this message, Living in Light of His Return, a study taken from 2 Peter. If you miss any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this message along with other great resources on this site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join Pat as he presents the conclusion of this message right here, once again on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.